0: Well, good morning, family. We are nearing the end of our journey through this little book of Titus. Uh, If you're just joining us, a quick catch-up. Young Pastor Titus was left by the Apostle Paul on the little island nation of Crete. Crete is an island that had at that time a notoriously bad reputation for violence, for piracy, for theft, for dishonesty, for lying, for immorality, for drunkenness, for gluttony, for greed, and on and on. And Titus's mission was to finish the work of building and maturing the fledgling churches there on in the nearly 100 cities on this little island and to grow up churches that would be able not only to survive, but to thrive even in that pagan culture. To that end, we've seen that Titus was instructed to build up and to appoint godly leaders, godly elders in all of these churches who would be responsible for teaching and instructing the people to uphold the truth of God's Word. Titus and these leaders were also to build up these godly people in the churches to live godly lives and to be good and godly citizens in their communities. We saw last week, finally, that they were to remember and to rehearse, to retell, to constantly be sharing their story of God's grace in their lives, how God rescued them out of sin, redeemed them, and changed them. All of these have, are essential lessons for them, but they also have been essential lessons for us as we seek to live as believers in Jesus Christ, to live as followers of Jesus who don't just survive in our culture, but who thrive even in a culture that grows increasingly uh, godless and increasingly antagonistic to Christianity. Today we come to chapter 3 and verses 9 through 11. I hope you've got your Bible out and we'll follow along as we look as the apostle comes to the final, the final paragraphs. We're going to look at some this week and then next week we finish up our study here in Titus. Often, I I don't know if you've noticed, but often when you talk to people, the end of the conversation is not the time to tune out it's the time to tune in if you haven't been following along tune into the last part of the conversation sometimes and i've noticed particularly with men there's a tendency with men that uh you'll sit down you'll talk and they'll talk and talk and talk for maybe an hour or two and and all along they'll talk about football they'll talk about uh, uh sports and hunting and whatever and then In the last few minutes, as you're getting ready to say goodbye, then they will will suddenly say, "Oh yeah, by the way, I lost my job. My wife has cancer. I gotta run. We'll see you." (laughs) They they tend to spill out everything in the last you know thirty seconds or minute of your conversation. So if you tune out if you tune out before the end, you've missed out. Other times, what I've noticed is some people will tell you during the course of the conversation they'll tell you what the point was. But they will often circle around at the end and hit it again just in case you missed it. That I think really is what Paul is doing here. He's circling back around to what is one of the key thoughts in this, in this little letter. And he hits it from a different perspective. Verse 9 through 11. Follow along as I read. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, and he is self-condemned. He begins there in verse 9 with, with the word avoid. In some of your translations, it's the first word, some of it's the second. But this little word avoid literally means to turn away, to to face the other direction, to turn away from, to walk away from something. I have a feeling that probably a fair number of you here this morning are avid label readers when you When you get the can off the shelf, when you get the box off the shelf, you read it to see what's in it before you take it home to put it in your pantry. For some of you, um, you're doing that because you're looking perhaps to lose some weight, and you're checking the the fat or the calories or the sugars or whatever. For some of you, it's maybe has to do with a medical condition or maybe just you're concerned about your overall health and so you're trying to cut out certain things. But I have a feeling that even most of you that are avid label readers, that there are times where you let it go. You've gone out to a restaurant and you really don't want to know what's in the food, you just want to enjoy it. Or you're over at a friend's house and you don't want to be rude and so you don't ask to see the package to see what, you know, and you don't say, you know, what's in these beans? You know, you just eat them and to be polite, you ignore it this time. Maybe there are times where you just get a little lazy and so you, you stop checking or you're craving a little salt or some of those sweets that aren't in the normal routine and or maybe you just miss the taste of MSG or whatever, you know, you... <laughs> So you, sometimes we're you're just not that particular about those labels, even though we're avid. However, in the past nine years, our family has become label readers. But unlike most label readers in our home, we don't see it as just something good to do or just something that is even important to do, but we come to reading labels as a matter of life and death necessity. Many of you are aware my grandson Owen has some severe food allergies. And a single misstep, a single failure to be vigilant can result in anaphylactic shock and time in the the ER wondering is he going to pull through this one? And so it puts a whole new perspective on label reading for us, we don't just read the labels. We're passing it off to, here, you read it. Here, you read it too. We're all checking, double checking, cross checking. Is this good? I say that because that really is the impetus of this word, avoid. When Paul says here, avoid, he's saying, treat it like it's a matter of life and death. It's not just, well, maybe we won't. It's, it's, when you see it's there, turn. Walk away. What he is going to call our attention to is a couple of church busters. Things that we need to be aware of that we need to avoid because they are critical to the life and the health of the church. Again, in verse 9, he says this, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. If I was going to summarize these things, the first thing that He calls for us to avoid is to avoid distraction. And He lists for us four distractions, four things that will distract us and turn a church from productive to useless. The first on the list is this. Foolish controversies, He says. Foolish controversies, that is arguments over foolish things. The Greek word for foolish is the word moros, which you can get. That's where we get our word moron. And that gives you a loan. That alone says maybe everything you need to know about just how brilliant these controversies are. These are moronic controversies. They are... Foolish. They are stupid. They're ridiculous. For example, if you go back to the ancient rabbinic writings, what you discover is that the rabbis would sit around and have great scholarly debates over really important matters like, do angels observe the Sabbath? We have to observe the Sabbath. I wonder if the angels do. And so they would have heated and and intense debates over do angels have to observe the Sabbath? No is the answer to that question. But that's way too simple. But it didn't just stop with the Jewish rabbis. It continued into the church. And we find that throughout the history of the church, the church has a long history of Foolish controversies. The commentator I was reading this past week, one one old commentator, uh, Adam Clark, and he, he quoted one of the great debates of the elite medieval scholars, the academics, the academics. And in his commentary, he quotes for uh, quoted for us one of these uh, one of these debates. In his commentary, he left it in Latin. He didn't bother to translate it. But here it was: utram essent excrementa in paradiso. That was one. The next one was this: utram sancti resurgent cum intestini. Oh wow! You know, we go; those are those are pretty intense. We get it. Well, we don't. So you have to have it translated. And so I took the time to translate it for you. And here's my translation of the first one: Is will you have to go to the bathroom in heaven? And here is the second great debate of these elite scholars in the medieval days, and that is, will the holy be resurrected with intestines? See, these go together. If you don't have to go to the bathroom, why would you need intestines in heaven? So, you know, they have these great, serious, long, intense, big debates. And the more I thought of that, I thought of the irony of it all. All those years as I spent as a youth pastor leading junior high boys was actually preparing me for deep theological scholarly debates with great intellectuals. I mean, this was the stuff of junior high fodder. <laughs> Where well, you go to the bathroom in heaven, you know. <laughs> and all that just says is, folks, the stuff that we occupy ourselves with so often even as the great scholars. It's moronic stuff! It's stupid! (laughs) It's the tendency for us to promote ideas and arguments for things that the Scriptures don't cover or aren't clear about and things that have no real value and no real certain answer. These are the things that generate lots of heat in seminaries across the land and across the world that produce no real light. (laughs) No great value. As one of my seminary professors used to say, there are people who are constantly trying to unscrew the unscrutable. (laughs) Trying to know the unknowable. So Paul wrote to Timothy, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, for you know that they breed quarrels, 2 Timothy 2. That's the first of these distractions that that can take the church from being productive and move it to the realm of worthless. The second distraction that he calls our attention to, he says, Avoid foolish controversies. Secondly, genealogies. We go, genealogies. Is he saying that you and I shouldn't Read or shouldn't discuss genealogies when we come to them in the Scriptures. You'll find them, for example, in, in Genesis chapter 5 or a little later, Genesis chapter 10. You'll find them in, in Chronicles. You'll find them in Ezra. You'll find them in Nehemiah. You'll come to uh, Matthew chapter 1. You have the genealogy of Christ. And again, over in Luke chapter 3. Is that what he's saying? Most of you would say, well, when I read the Scriptures, I really skip past the genealogies. anyway so it doesn't really bother me, you know. And it says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. And it goes on for page after page. And we go, why is this here? Well, here we go from Scripture. Paul says, avoid them. Enough said. No, that's about what he means. This mention of genealogies here actually takes us back a little earlier in the book. If you go back, if you're around the beginning of this study, chapter 1, verse... 10, the Apostle Paul mentions these empty talkers and deceivers, these false teachers who were stirring up trouble on the island of Crete, and he says these false teachers and deceivers of the circumcision group. And we wonder, huh? And that's Bible code talk for Jews. These These false teachers were among the Jews. And then two verses later, down in verse 13 of chapter 1, the apostle says this. He says that he is to rebuke them, the the people, sharply so that they will be sound in the faith, so that they will not devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Titus, you need to invest in teaching the people so they know the truth well, so that when these false teachers, these Jewish false teachers, start propagating Jewish myths, they won't buy into it. Paul wrote Timothy similarly. See, he says, As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Just like the Apostle Paul left Titus on the island of Crete, he left Timothy back in the city of Ephesus. And many things were different in the two places, but one thing that was the same is this particular issue. And the Apostle goes on in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3, he says, I, I urge you remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to, here it is, myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. See, what is going on is that some of the Jewish rabbis were well known for taking the name, some obscure name of a person from the Old Testament, often from, quite often from a genealogy. So you have this genealogy with all these lists of names. They would grab one of these names that nobody knows anything else about because the name is only just mentioned in that one spot in the Scripture. And then they would weave this this whole storyline, this whole scenario, this whole, this whole uh, fable, A legend, create a legend about this character. They did this and this and this and this and this. And the reason they would do this is now they take this story and they, and they make it part of their, of their, uh, regular repertoire as they teach and stuff. And this story now they use to support an idea, a concept, a teaching that they have come up with and they can't find any scripture that backs it up. So they build a legend, a story, a myth. And it supports the teaching. We know this because you can read them. The Haggadah, a collection of Jewish rabbinic writings, contains scores of examples of these myths, these legends that rabbis made up ultimately to bolster some argument, some viewpoint, some teaching that they wanted to propagate. <clears throat> in other words, these genealogies equal human speculations that people use to build them build up what they want to propagate because it's not in the scriptures. So it's setting human teaching, human speculation as opposed to the scripture. And so while we don't really deal much with Jewish myths today in the church, This same problem is alive and well in Christian circles today. Rather than focusing on the things that the scriptures plainly teach, there are plenty of people in the name of Christendom who go and promote some wild thoughts and some speculations and philosophies that they build on the, on fables and myths and the experiences of men. And if you doubt that, I challenge you to go to hang out in some Christian bookstores or to go on Christian websites and what you'll find is that there are plenty of things like this. This person propagating there and telling about their experience of 30 minutes in heaven or their five minutes in hell. Or how numerology or equal distant letter spacing or the Great Pyramid in Egypt will all unlock the mysteries and secrets in the Bible. It's all out there. So they tell us how we need this psychological technique or we need this person's new insights. Into the scriptures, and by the way, we don't. But they do that instead of just going and studying and learning what the scriptures clearly teach. It was a problem on Crete, and it's a problem today. getting away from the clear teaching of Scripture and following human speculations. There's a third distraction which can come to the church which will which will move us from being productive to being worthless in ministry. And it's the third thing in the list. He says that we are to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions. Dissensions, being contentious, Wanting to debate, it simply is dealing with people who have a tendency to want to argue and fight. Period. About anything. About everything. Contentious people. Anybody here like that? No, no, no. That's the wrong question. Anybody here know anybody like that? (laughs) Yeah, we do. Everything becomes a debate. It really comes down to... Simply a person of pride who's all about pushing my way, my views, my thoughts. I have to win every argument. I have to, you know, it's a person who's just all about being contentious. Dissensions equals contentiousness. Contentiousness, being argumentative should not be descriptive of God's people earlier we read last week and up in earlier in chapter 3 second verse where he's describing he's reminding us of things that we need to to do things we need to be and he said there in verse 2 he says that we are as believers to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling to be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people Again, Timothy's having the same problem over in Ephesus and the Apostle writes again something very similar to him and he says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Arguing should not be descriptive of God's people, but it all too often is. Brothers and sisters, no matter how spiritually mature someone claims to be, no matter how eloquent they may be as a teacher, if they are quarrelsome, if they are contentious, don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Avoid them. Go the other way. Fourthly, the fourth The fourth distraction that will move us from being a church that is productive to a church that is unproductive, worthless in ministry. The fourth thing in the list, he says, speaks of quarrels about the law. Quarrels about the law. He's talking about Irrelevant quarrels about the Bible. I don't mean by that that Paul is dismissing the Bible in any way as irrelevant or that studying the Bible is not significantly important or that we shouldn't stand firm for the truth because we should stand firm for truth. And to do that, we need to study the Bible well. He is also not saying that there is not a place in... in um, in our experience and in our in our community together as believers for us to come with with difficult passages of scripture and wrestle together as to what is this saying. Well, I think it means this because of this and this and this and no, I think it means this because of this and this and this and we wrestle together that is legitimate and appropriate as brothers and sisters in Christ who are seeking to uh, uh, to rightly divide the scriptures. So that's not what he means by this at all when he says quarrels about the law. What he is talking about is when we turn the study of Scripture into arguing about biblical minutia. In other words, we major on the minors. And we take those minors and we... we Dig in trenches and build up walls and, and, and we argue and fight about these little things. The grace of Christ gets pushed aside as we quarrel over the minutiae of Scripture. Let me give you an example. We all know that Jesus commanded us to go and make disciples, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and as we make disciples, we're to be baptizing them. But, when you go and baptize people, do you baptize them face first down or do you baptize them backwards? And you go, never thought of it and who cares? Except that there are people who, there are churches that have split and whole denominations that have formed over. Will you baptize them forward? No, you don't. You baptize them backwards. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Oh, when you do baptize them, whichever way you do go, do you baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, or do you baptize them in the name of Jesus only? Again, we say, never thought of it. Does it really matter? Well, they're both in the Scripture. Yeah, but it's right if you do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, not just in the name of Jesus. No, it's not It's right if you baptize them in Jesus. Not. In... <laughs> That's what this is. Quarreling about the law. About the minutia, about the small things. We turn them into big fights. Non-essential teachings become battlegrounds that split believers and split churches. I think as we press our finely tuned views of these minute matters, what tends to happen is we move towards legalism that ends up becoming a substitute for spirituality, for true spirituality. We move into legalism and Phariseeism. Jesus described the problem with the Pharisees this way in Matthew chapter 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you you tithe mint and dill and cumin and yet you have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel. He says, you guys, you've gone out and you've... You've made minutia of the law so you've tried to define what tithing is. We've got to give a tenth of everything so when I go out to my little spice, my little herb garden out here and I gather a few little sprigs of herbs and I bring them in, I've got to make sure that I've got ten leaves. I've got to give one to God. And you do that and you, you make sure that you're, you're faithful in all these silly little details and you ignore the weighty things of the law like justice for the widow and the orphan and mercy for the downtrodden and the hurting. Faithfulness in the things that really matter. Like blind guides, He says, to you fix your morning coffee and you get out the little cheesecloth to... Pour your coffee through to get out the coffee grounds, and by the way, you caught a gnat, I happened to get into my my coffee and i I strain the gnat, and then somehow pull the cheesecloth away, and a camel falls in my cup, and I don't worry about it, and I drink my coffee so it's, it's it's ludicrous. the brothers and sisters, the Jewish Pharisees aren't the only ones who did that. We do it today in the church. We get on our little hobby horses and our little minutiae of things where we, we cross the T's and dot the I's and we, we made sure we get everything right on these little, our little hobby horses of theology. We get this stuff right. And we miss the camel. And all the time what we console ourselves, we're so spiritual because we've Crossed our Ts and dotted our eyes over here, and we missed the camel. And we look down at all these folks because they are not crossing the Ts like we are, and they're not dotting the eyes over here. They're also not drinking the camel. But <laughs> and we console ourselves, not realizing that we have fooled ourselves, thinking we're so spiritual. There's the problem. It moves into hypocrisy. Moves into so many things. Quarrels about the law. It's a great danger here. So Paul, again, in his writing to Timothy over in Ephesus says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, not about the minutiae stuff, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Yes, there is place to, again, to deal with truth and there are matters we need to really be particular on, but it's what's spelled out clearly in Scripture, not the minutiae stuff. These four things, he says, these are unprofitable and they are worthless. Turn away from them, avoid them, shun them, don't toy with them, don't just think these are not a big deal, but turn away, go the other direction. They're unprofitable and worthless if we get sucked into them because they consume our time, they consume our energies, they get our attention, they get our passion, and we pour ourselves into foolish controversies and into into human speculations and into dissensions and being contentious and always fighting and we pour ourselves into biblical minutiae. And every time I've read this, that's where i focused. But I realized as I was studying this week that there's a flip side of this coin. I don't think Paul's real main reason here for bringing this up was to tell us don't get involved in these things. Don't, don't buy the, the lies. Don't buy into, the, into these foolish controversies and into these human speculations. That is part of what he's saying, but I don't think that's the main point. I think he's talking to Titus and to the leaders and he's saying, Guys, don't, we can get sidetracked and distracted that way, but we can also get distracted on this side. Seeing that that's a foolish controversy, seeing that that's human speculation, seeing that that is just being contentious, seeing that that's biblical minutiae, we can go and spend all our time attacking and trying to refute and trying to correct all of these little foolish things and we end up, either way we come at it, we end up being neutralized because we get our focus off the main thing. And we get consumed by the minutia and by the foolish stuff. And so yes, there's there's instruction here to all of us, don't get caught in these things. There's also to instruction to all of us who see those things as they are, don't waste your time trying to fix it all. What am I supposed to do? spend my time doing. We'll talk about that in just a moment. There's another danger here that we need to see first. The first danger is avoid distraction. The second danger, and it won't take us nearly as long on this one as the first, is this, avoid division. Verses 10 and 11, he said, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Those four distractions have an accompanying problem, a second problem besides being worthless wasters of time and energy, and that is this, the propagators of those distractions are divisive people. These people who who come in promoting those those foolish arguments, those foolish controversies, and those dissensions, and the, that minutia, and those human those human speculations, in the process of bringing these things, they create division. They create schisms in the body of Christ. Because what's at the root of all of those things is pride, and if these people calling people to themselves be you know, come and follow me and get the, and get the insight, get the, the little secret word and the special knowledge and the, the depth of spirituality by following these ridiculous things. And it creates these factions and these little groups in the body. And that's a dangerous thing. You see, because the unity and the love of the church is essential to our mission. Again, going back to verse 2 of this same chapter, I read it a moment ago, where it says that we are to speak evil of no one and avoid quarreling and be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. And why is that such a big deal? The whole reason that Paul has made for, for everything going back to the chapter before about why we need to live godly lives, it's all about how we need to live godly lives because it affects how the world looks at us. See, we can have all the right theology and if you and I are not loving people, if we don't live the truth that we say we profess, the world looks at us and goes, yeah, right. If we claim to serve a God of love and we are not loving people, if we claim to serve a God of grace and we are not gracious, if we claim... To serve a God who is holy and we live ungodly. The world mocks us as hypocrites. And our message, the credibility of the message of the gospel suffers. Jesus said it this way in John 13. You know this verse well. But, you, but by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world is going to know that you're followers of Jesus Christ, not because you can list all the five solas. It's good if you can do that. Not because you can recite the Bible, all the books of the Bible in one breath. It's nice if you can do that. Not because you can recite the Beatitudes, or name all twelve of the apostles, or, you know, whatever. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another so it is that the witness and the testimony of the church is destroyed when we are divided when we split into factions over minutia and foolish arguments and divisive people and human speculations you see these two things go together and so we go back to chapter 1 and verse 11 as Paul is talking about these Jewish false teachers with their myths. And he says, what do we do about them? They must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by their teaching. Families, if you were here when we looked at that, families is literally the word household. And it may be talking about these false teachers are getting in between husbands and wives and they're messing up. They're causing divisions in families, but it's more likely that speaking here of the word household, it's really referring to the fact that, that, you see, in those days, most churches didn't meet in church buildings. They didn't have buildings. They met in homes. And I think when he's speaking of the households that are being, that are being upset, it's really talking about the church that meets in the home. In other words, churches are being Destroyed, upset by these false teachers, and so what do we do with an opinionative propagandist who provokes dissension by his pertinacity? I stole that from Ale- from Aleister Begg. That's a great phrase. <laughs> what do we do with opinionative propagandists who provoke dissension by their pertinacity, and it's pertinent people who do stuff like that or pertinacity or whatever. What do we do with such folks? They need to be stopped, Paul said. So he calls upon the leaders, the elders of the church, to take quick and decisive action. The action is just laid out here in the verse that we just read. What do we do with such a person? We warn them once. It doesn't say take a gun and shoot him. It doesn't say beat them up, take them out back and get the get the guys, teach them a lesson. It says, warn him, say, you know what? This isn't right. You're promoting foolish arguments. You're promoting human speculation, not the word of God. You are being divisive and destructive to the body. You you're focused on minutia. You need to you need to stop stirring the pot here. You need to you need to come back and focus on the word of God. You need to you need to focus on building the body, not Splitting it apart. And he says, you warn them once, and if they keep doing it, you go and you warn them a second time. And then after the second time, it says, if they do it a third time, have nothing more to do with them. What does that mean? That means you kick them out of the church. Say, sorry. If you're going to continue to be like that, you're not going to, you're not going to be like that here. Because We will not allow your warped and sinful ways to spread in the church, and it will spread in the church. Again, Paul writing Timothy with similar problems over in Ephesus says this. He says, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. It will spread like an infection. If you don't treat it, if you don't deal with it, it will spread. And so there is a warning here to churches. Division will move us from being productive in ministry to being worthless in ministry. And it is not something that you can leave alone. When it rears its ugly head, you need to address it. You need to deal with it. I'm so thankful in this church for the godly men that you have as elders in this church. Not just the current bunch of elders, but every group of elders that I've had the privilege of serving with here in this church for over 30 years. These things don't happen often, but they do happen even here. And every time that situations like this have come up, your elders have stepped up to the plate and said, what do we need to do? And they go and they address the person and they say, you know, this is a problem. Here it is. We've got to fix this. have got to stop it. Most of the time that does it, but sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes they have to go a second time. And on a few occasions they've had to say, you know, this is too destructive. We cannot allow you to continue with this. It's not right for you, it's not good for you, and it's not good for this church. I'm so thankful for leaders like that. You guys need to you need to appreciate your elders and you need to pray for them. Because they need wisdom and they need grace and they need boldness to be this kind of leader. Paul has warned us about these two dangers, distraction and division, that can derail the church from our mission, our focus, and render us unproductive. And our passage ends there, but I don't want to end the message there because that's kind of a downer of a place to end it. So what I want to do is take us back and to the flip side, I asked a minute ago, or brought up the question a moment ago, if this takes us off focus and moves us to be unproductive, where should our focus be and what makes us productive as individuals and as a church? The question is answered in the verse where we ended last week in verse 8, so I'd invite you to look back up there. He's, he's finishing a, a section where he has been reminding us of things that are important in verses 1-8. through eight. And he gets down to the end and he kind of sums it up in verse 8 and he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. What are the things that are excellent and profitable for people, for, as the NIV says, for all men, for believers? What are they? Notice what he said. Those who have believed in God, number one, believing God's truth, and who are careful to devote themselves to good works. Believing God's truth first. And secondly, devoting ourselves to good works. In other words, living a good, a godly life. Going back to the very beginning of the book, verse 1, the Apostle Paul lays out what is his aim, his ambition, his driving move in life. What's he looking for? Look back in verse 1. Paul says this, his passion is to Help people to know the truth that leads to godliness. It is actually the main theme of this book. These two concepts, truth and godly living, are the two big concepts of this whole book. From verse 1 of chapter 1 to verse 1 of chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, if you read all the way through, what you'll see come up again is is how the importance of teaching sound. Doctrine of sound teaching. Chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's all about teaching the truth of God's Word. And then from verse 2 of chapter 2 to the end of the book, the rest of the book is focusing on that truth applied, living godly lives. And he tells us and lays it out in plain, simple, clear terms what it is to live like a godly person. Brothers and sisters, how do we live a productive life? Focus on learning and sharing God's truth, on, on knowing and teaching God's truth, and secondly, focus on living a godly life. And you'll have a productive life if that is our focus as a church, knowing God's Word and sharing God's truth and living godly lives will be a productive church. On the other hand, if we get distracted by these other things, if we get divided by these other things, we'll move into uselessness, worthlessness, will be unproductive. And Paul says, Don't go there, church. Don't go there. Cling to the truth. Share it. And live it. Father, thank you for this instruction. We need it. We confess. We we are so prone to to get caught up in foolish, foolish stuff, useless stuff. It's easy to get caught up in fads of what this person says and that person says, and we get pay more attention to that than what the Word of God says. It's easy to be contentious. and we just fight to prove our point or get our way. It's easy to focus on the minutia. in the process of that, the unity of the body gets shattered. We take up sides. We take up camps. And the church becomes powerless and meaningless in the culture. Father, we're here in the midst of a of a people where fewer and fewer of our neighbors and co-workers and friends and schoolmates, fewer and fewer of them know the good news of Jesus, and not a whole lot of them have really positive feelings about Christians. and the reason is that so often we have we haven't lived it, and we're not sharing the truth. we haven't lived it and we haven't sharing it. Father God, I pray that You would change that in us. Each one of us individually, personally, and together corporately as a church. The two things that would define us here at the Chapel of the Lake is we are people who love the Word of God. We we learn it. We share it. And we live faithfully for Jesus. In his name we ask that you would make it happen.